I want to start tonight with a question, with asking this question. Are you a brick or are you a stone? Now, I don't know which one, if you were just going to choose. Well, I don't know if I'm a brick or a stone, but I'm just going to choose one. I like bricks. Or maybe some of you would say, well, I like stones. That's the question. Are you a brick or are you a stone? Now, a little bit about these things that I have before you. This is a brick, in case you didn't know. But anyways, this is a brick. And I got this at Home Depot. Yeah, so nothing special. Anyways, Home Depot, and that's because I live right behind Home Depot. And this rock, however, this stone, if you will, is something different. I actually uh, was on a business trip this week, and I actually took a side trip into southern Utah, and I actually picked up this stone in Zion National Park. And so this is a special stone, and so that's going to go somewhere on my desk, somewhere. But I come back to the question, are you a brick or a stone? Now, as far as building materials, building products, they're both used fairly widely. You see a lot of brick throughout the country, and you go into certain areas, you see, you see a lot of stone. You see a lot of people building with brick, stone, and in some areas you see a little bit of everything. And as building products, they're both fine. But tonight I'm not talking about physical building products, physical building materials. Tonight I'm presenting them, the brick and the stone, as the Bible presents them as a picture of your life. One is how the Lord sees you, and the other is how the enemy of your soul sees you. So let me rephrase the question. Spiritually speaking, are you a brick or a stone? Tonight we've come to Genesis 11, and we'll be taking a look at and talking about an event of history that is pretty well known. I think people are at least somewhat aware of this particular event. Tonight we'll be talking about the Tower of Babel. What was it? What was this tower? And what really happened at Babel? What was it that really happened? The answers greatly affect your understanding of the Bible and the scriptures. And what happened at Babel has a great impact on your life. Believe it or not, what happened at Babel has a great impact on your life. You say, how's that? How's that, Charles? Nothing about my week had anything to do with Babel. In fact, the only Babel I know is, I guess there's an app now where you can learn different languages and they called it Babel. Anybody have that? Yeah, you can learn to speak different languages if you don't know, you wanna learn how to speak Spanish, just download it, not now, but you can download a, an app called Babel. But tonight we're gonna ask this question, are you a brick or a stone? Why, why are we gonna ask it? Here's the, here's the reason, because God is, is building. God is building and he uses a particular kind of building material. Jesus is a master builder and he uses a certain kind of building material. And so we're gonna take a look at this this tonight in Genesis chapter 11. If you're taking notes, this is kind of the main point. Jesus builds you and his church. 
Jesus builds you and his church. Let's pick it up. Genesis chapter 11, verse one. It says this. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. God is the creator. He's the creator of the world, right? The heavens and the earth. And so really from that sense, we can say that he's a builder. He's a master builder. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus was born God incarnate, that he spent the first little part of his life building as well, physically, physically, literally being a carpenter and spending that time and then putting that carpentry business behind him, he turned towards his real plan, his real work that he came to do, which was to build a kingdom, to build a kingdom upon the earth. You see, there are two. You ever woken up in the morning and wondered what God is up to? You ever had that thought? Only me? Okay, yeah. God is working all the time, and he is up to, to basically, I'm sorry, getting a call. Sorry about that. I don't know why in the world. Why not have that on mute? Okay. Um, must not be somebody that knows I'm preaching right now. <clears throat> Where was I? God's up to something. What is he up to? Well, he's working and he's building. He's working on two great building projects. What are they? The first one you'll be interested in. It's you. You are God's, one of God's great building projects. If you're in Christ here, he's building you. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter one, verse six. You'll see it on the screen. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so if you're in Christ here tonight, God is working on you. He's working in you. You are his workmanship. You are a work of art that he is working on. And he is going to, and you can be confident of it, he is bringing it to a completion. He's bringing it to a time when you are going to be fully done in, in Jesus Christ. Amen? And then he has another building project. You are the first one. The second one is the church. The church. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he was responding to Peter's confession to the question, who, are, who do men say that I am? And it was on that occasion that, that Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 18. You'll see it on the screen. And I also say to you that you are Peter and that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So Jesus is building and he's building, working on two great building projects. You and he's building a church 
a body of believers that are being built up into a place, a habitation of his, a building of God, a city of God. Amen? And we can be excited about that. That's something that we, we can be excited about, and you're going to be a little bit more excited about it after this message than you perhaps are right now. Last week, we talked about, and if you weren't here, we talked about the table of nations there in Genesis 10, and we talked about the sons of Ham, or the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and how all the world was populated through the, the, the three sons of of. Noah, and we talked about those 70 sons that came. There were 70 nations, and those represented the, the, the nations uh, that, that became the nations of the world. And you can see all those names in Genesis chapter 10. When we looked at the descendants of Ham, particularly, we noticed that many of these descendants became the enemies of God. As you read the rest of scripture, if you read those names of the sons of Ham, you read some of those names and you say, oh, I recognize a lot of these names. It's because those nations became enemies of God and enemies of the people of God. And so last week, that chapter kind of really kind of foreshadowed, really, if you know a little bit about scripture and you read some of those names, it foreshadowed some of the things that you later come to know and to understand. Not only are they the enemies of God and enemies of the world, some of those sons of Ham, but they also, in a sense, become a type of the world. You say, how's that? The world that I'm talking about is the world not of God. You know, there's the world, the earth, the world that we live on, and then there's the world, the cosmos that, that we exist in, and then there's this other term, the world. And I'm using it in kind of that third sense, the world that is not of God. And these enemies of God, these enemies of Israel, become a type of the world, the world that is not of God. One in particular, Mizram. When we came to that name Mizram, and that's really Egypt. Now, Egypt is perhaps the greatest type in the Bible of the world because it is the bondage of Egypt that, that God delivers his people out of. And he frees them from the chains of Egypt. And so the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt becomes a picture of the freedom that you and I have in Christ. That we've been called out of Egypt, out of the world, set free from the shackles of sin and the bondage that we were under. And we were free to go and to worship God and to be a part of his family. And so you have Mizram, you have Egypt. But then you also have the Canaanites. And we read through some of those names there. And you had all the ites, right? All the Canaanites, all the ites. And those will come to bear upon the rest of Scripture. And those became kind of a type of the world as well. And then, of course, you also had the Assyrians and those of the kingdom that Nimrod built in the plain of Shinar. And we talked a little bit about this descendant of Ham, his name was Nimrod. And he began to be a mighty one in the earth and he began to build cities and he was a mighty one, but it says before the Lord, but really the language really would suggest that it was more, he was against the, the Lord. He was in rebellion before the Lord in that sense. He was gathering people under his dominion, gathering them into cities and he began to build these cities. And so you have this kingdom 
of Nimrod there built in the plain of Shinar, which is really what would be modern-day Iraq. At this point in Scripture, you begin to see a real contrast. You see the enemies of God building a city, and then when we get to chapter 12, which will be next week's study, we'll see that God begins his project of building a city, of having a people in the earth, of having a nation that is his, and beginning to build a city that would be the city of God, the people of God. Now back to Nimrod. Nimrod, where we learned in last week's chapter, Nimrod built cities. He built the cities of Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. One of them becomes representative of the city of the world. It's Babel. It becomes known as Babylon, Babylon. And if you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand Babylon because Babylon becomes a place of the world. It becomes a place of spiritual adultery. It becomes a place of false religious worship. And this is what happens. So the city of Babel, of Babylon, begins to be built. They said, let us build a city and let us build a tower. That's what we just read in Genesis 11. Let us build a city and let us build a tower. And that's what they did. It has been said that the story of the Bible, if you read it from cover to cover, is a tale of two cities. You say, well, wait a second. That sounds like Charles Dickens, right? Didn't he write a book called A Tale of Two Cities? Yeah, A Tale of Two Cities. But really, the Bible could be called a, a book of A Tale of Two Cities in this sense. On one hand, it's the story of Babylon and what happens with the city of men, the city of rebellion against God. And then the story of Jerusalem, right? The story of the city of God and the people who want to be part with the family of God. And so, as you look throughout the rest of Scripture, you're going to see this contrast between Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon and Jerusalem. Now, under Nimrod, Babylon was the seat and the foundation of false religion. It will come up. Babylon comes up throughout Scripture. You see it uh, as you get into you know, the rest of the Old Testament, um, one of the main parts, one of the main areas that it comes up is in Daniel, as you, you see Nebuchadnezzar and the, the, the Babylonians actually come in and, um, you know, raid the city of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar, and they destroy the temple and lay the city in ruins, and they take uh, many of the Israelites into captivity, and then, of course, then you have this, the whole story of Daniel and how he becomes this... Uh, one in Nebuchadnezzar's court that ends up interpreting his dreams. But then you also see Babylon. It comes up all the way through Scripture, and then it climaxes in the last part, the latter part of the book of Revelation, where you have this mystery Babylon. You have the city of Babylon. And it is really representative of the city of man that is in open rebellion toward God, the Lord God. And so this is really what you see going forward that really becomes crystal clear as we begin to go through the rest of Scripture. Babylon, the city of man, Jerusalem, the city of God. So under Nimrod, Babylon was the seat and foundation of false religion. In, in that sense, and there's a lot of sources on this stuff that you can dig up, but 
it, it boils down to this, that there came to be formed a particular brand of false religion. There was a particular uh, storyline that was created under, based in its first ruler, Nimrod, who became like a god to the Chaldean people. And the reason why he became like a god to the Chaldean people is because, or the Babylonians, is because he, the, the, the ruler, and this was still true uh, throughout history in a lot of ways, this idea of the divine right of kings, right? So that you had the king of the nation, but really he, he got his power from the gods or God, perhaps the one true God or the gods, depending upon which culture you are talking about. And so under this rule of Nimrod, he becomes like a God to the people, but there are these other gods that this trinity really of gods that they're, that they're worshiping and they create this uh, thing. Nimrod had a, had a wife, his, her name was Semiramis and um, she was kind of this wild woman. When you look at Babylon, um, she's, she's actually pictured as a woman in the, the, old, uh, the New Testament, Revelation. You see the, uh, the woman who rides the beast, so to speak. And, and, um, and it's, it's a very interesting thing. But she's this wild woman. And here's basically how, the, I'll give you the gist of the story. Semiramis kind of has a wild fling and becomes uh, pregnant by not Nimrod, but someone else. So as it were, Nimrod ends up getting killed and Semiramis, who has the baby, begins to tell the story of how the, the baby that she was literally impregnated from Nimrod kind of posthumously vis-a-vis um, -vis the rays of the sun. And that's why when you look back into the Babylonian culture and the Babylonian stuff, it's all it's um, the sun god, worship of the sun god, that whole thing. And so this is the story. And so then the, the fruit of that union really was a baby, and his name is Tammuz. Now, Tammuz is a name that you will see as, we, as you go through Scripture, and you'll see. So you have, you have Nimrod, and then you have Semiramis, and you have uh, uh, Tammuz. And so Tammuz is this, the, the son. And so you have this whole thing, and it's really a false trinity of the early Chaldean pagan religion. And what we're going to talk about tonight is where God comes down in the midst of this absolute spiritual rebellion and this pagan worship and what they were doing really with building the tower. And he comes down into the midst of it and he confuses the language. He confuses the language of the people. I just want to touch on it here briefly before we get to it later. But the confusion of the languages produced uh, this same story to be retold in other cultures. And so by the time you get out of Babylon and you get into some of the other cultures, you have a similar story that's retold, but this, the names have changed. And so when you get to Egypt, you have, uh, you, you have uh, Osiris, you have Isis, and you have Horus. But it's basically the same story. And then when you get to the Romans, you get to the Grecians, you get to whatever it is, it's, it's all the same story, but it's been translated, it's been changed into the dialects that were confused at Babel. And so then you have this false religious system that begins to permeate and cover the world. So during his reign, Nimrod began to build a building. He began to build a city, began to build a building in the plain of Shinar. We know it as the Tower 
of Babel. And when Nimrod had the people build the Tower of Babel, he had them use bricks. Look at that verse 3. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. One of the things about the imagery of, of the brick aspect is that it's, it's kind of something that it's, it's actually, you know, from a, from a building standpoint, I mean, brick layers, you know, they, they lay these out and put the mortar on, and then you can kind of put them, and it's real easy. You can, if you've ever seen a really good brick layer, they can, they can lay some brick. On the other hand, when you're building with stone, it's a little bit more of a process. Why is that? Because they're not all uniform. They're different shapes. And so if you've ever seen somebody build with stone, perhaps like a wall or a, a fireplace or a chimney or something, and if you're gonna build with brick, you kind of have to really kind of join each piece together strategically. You have to, you know, you, you have a pile of rocks over here, you have a pile of stones, and you begin to put a piece in there, and then you look down and you say, oh, well, this one looks like it'll go here, and, and you begin to build like that. Whereas this one is all uniform. In that sense, you could say it's conformed. It's conformed into a particular shape. And really, as we look at it, I want you to see tonight that this is really kind of uh, the story of, of, of what your life is or what it can be in Christ. Your, your life really outside of Christ is a brick. And, and that's why I brought this up here tonight because your life outside of Christ is something that has literally been conformed to the world. You, and, and, and what the world wants to do with you is it, it wants to to press you in, to conform you into what the world wants and so that it can build its city. It can do what it wants to do. But see, God wants you to be a stone. You're a living stone. Peter put it this way, you're living stones and he wants to build you and fit you together in the body of Christ. And so he wants you to be a living stone and the world wants you to be a brick. Now, something more about the bricks as you go throughout scripture, Pharaoh had the Israelites making bricks in their slavery, remember? So they were building in Babylon using, or Babel, using bricks. And then later in Genesis or in Exodus, we'll see that they were building with bricks and it was a result of their slavery. Remember, they had to bake, bake the bricks and do all that in their slavery. And so in that sense, bricks could be a picture of the old life of slavery to sin. Again, the brick is completely conformed. If you were to go back to Home Depot, you'd see a whole pile of them and they look exactly like this. They, they all look exactly the same. And, and we need to understand that that's what the world wants to do. The, the world talks about being you know, free to express yourself and free to be yourself. And, and when I go to see all these people that are free to express themselves, they all look exactly the same. They got the same clothes on, the same whole look. It, 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 the world wants to, to press you into its mold, but God wants you to be a living stone. He has better for you. He has a better plan for you than the world does. He has a better plan for your life than the enemy of your soul because he's got something that he's building that is eternal in the heavens and he's putting it together with living stones. Amen? Amen. The enemy wants everyone squeezed into its mold. And that's why Paul tells the Christians in Romans, in, in, in Rome, 
in chapter 12, verse 2, you'll see it on the screen. He says, and do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so what, what, what Paul is saying here is don't, don't let the world make you a brick. Don't be conformed into the pattern of this world. Let God work with you. Be a living stone that God wants to build with. So the question is, as we come to the tower, and they were building with bricks. The real question tonight is, what was this tower? Most people think of the tower, and I did, you know, probably for most of my childhood, you talk about the Tower of Babel. Well, yeah, they were building this really tall building out there in Babel, and, and God didn't like how tall it was getting, and so he came down and shut the whole project down, right? Isn't that it? Isn't that the story that we were basically told? No, the, the story doesn't have anything to do with the height of the building. God's not afraid of, of tall buildings, amen? Anybody been in, inside of a tall building? I've been in some tall buildings, and God's not afraid of tall buildings. That's not the issue. Listen to what they said. Let us build a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And some of this idea that we have of it being like this tall building and God not liking the height of it, and so therefore he had to you know, deal with this problem of the height of this tower, comes from a lot of the pictures that we saw growing up in books and everything. There was a painter in the 16th century. His name was... Let's see if I can find it here. Peter Bruegel. And this, this was his painting. Any, anybody seen this painting of the Tower of Babel? Raise your hand if you've seen this painting. Just like to, to know if you've seen this painting. This is from 1563. And this was Bruegel's painting of the Tower of Babel. And I actually remember this. I think this, this had to have been in like a picture Bible or something. One of those Bibles, the family Bible sitting on the, the coffee table or something. And, you know, leafing through that. And, oh, what's this? Oh, the Tower of Babel. Right? So they said, let us build a, a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. So a lot of people are thinking like, oh, well, God doesn't like the height of the building, and so he's going to change it. Before we address what the project really was all about, it's interesting that a copy of this um, was actually made in real life. And go to the next picture. And this is actually the EU Parliament building in, in uh, Strasbourg, France. And they literally modeled the building of the EU Parliament after the Bruegel painting. As it, I don't know what they're trying to say, but you, you, you can uh, maybe have an idea of what's going on there in the EU. The tower was not really a tower to reach to the sky in terms of its height. It was really what's called a ziggurat. And I've got a kind of a picture of a ziggurat. There are different forms, but they would have uh, these different levels and stairways going up. And, um, and then ultimately you'd have this kind of room on the top. And that was, it was kind of a room where the, the king would rule from, but also it was a place where they literally invited what we know to be demonic powers, the, the gods uh, in that sense, to come down and meet with them and to be with them. 
And so really what this was all about was this was all about their open rebellion against the Lord Most High and their invitation to these demonic powers, these lesser gods, if you will, if you want to put it that way, and to invite them into their midst, to worship them, and to do all kinds of crazy stuff like that. And so you can see where God is not liking this. Why? Because he's a jealous God. He, he knows that, that, that his best plan for each human being is for them to be in relationship with him, to be worshipers of him. But he's given everyone free choice and they can go and do what they want to do. So God steps in to the middle of this situation as they're doing this. He steps in and deals with the situation. Now I want to go back and read verses 5 through 7 here in chapter 11. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said... Indeed, the people are one and they will have one language and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad and, there, and from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because... There, the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So, what we've just read is basically God's response to what they did. Now, really, you know, it's, it's an affront to God to worship a lesser thing, right? God is the creator, and if you're worshiping any other thing than God, you're worshiping a created thing. They may be demonic powers or the principalities and powers that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, however you want to describe that and get into the classifications of all that, but that's what we're talking about here. Anything less than that, less than God, is a created thing. And so you're going from worshiping God, the Lord most high, Yahweh most high, and you're going to worship the created thing rather than the creator. And this is an affront to God. And secondly, they were not moving out and being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. See, part of the mandate was not just kind of being fruitful and multiplying in one location. It was being fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so they were gathering together in cities. They were kind of congregating in that under a demonic rule, under a false religious system, under the rebellion of man. And that's why most things that man sets out to do without acknowledging God are destined for failure. All political systems, I don't care what it is, I don't care how great the thinking is, things that are done in outright rebellion to God, not acknowledging God and what he wants to do, they're destined to fail. You ever wondered why we can't get it figured out in Washington? Yeah. Because we're not really operating in a godly way. We're doing all things according to man's ways. And it's, they're destined to fail. So what did he do? He confused the language of the people. And he scattered mankind. So really, it, it wasn't just that he confused the language. That was the first thing. The second thing was 
he scattered the people over the face of the earth. And what God does here in this section that we read is one of the most pivotal events in the Bible and one of the most cons consequential. It's important to understand correctly what God did here. The understanding, and there's, there's, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of teaching on this, and, and, and honestly, I haven't, I don't remember a whole lot of teaching on this, to be, to be honest with you, growing up. And the teaching I did have was, it was very basic. It was treated as if they built a tower, God didn't like it, da da da, I confused the language, we don't really know what's going on, but God dealt with it. And let's move on to chapter 12 and talk about Abraham. <laughs> That's basically what it was. But there's a lot more going on here, and there's a lot more that needs to be understood so that you can understand what God does in chapter 12. If you want us to understand chapter 12 and God's selection of Abraham, you need to understand what God did in confusing the language and scattering the people at Babel. So the understanding and presentation on what happened at Babel, the, 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 the best presentation I've, I've come across is the presentation done on this particular topic by Dr. Michael Heiser. And, and of course, we just had... Dr. Heiser here a few weeks ago, we're blessed that it's kind of amazing that when I say that, I was like, oh wow, Dr. Heiser was literally right here. But anyways, he presents what happened um, in Genesis 11 uh, in his book, The Unseen Realm. And I, I, I really want you to, and I'm just gonna spend a, a couple minutes here talking about this so that you can begin to understand the greater picture of what is happening here in scripture. Of course, Dr. Heiser was here a few weeks ago and he taught Genesis 6. The proper understanding of what God did at Babel is what Dr. Heiser calls the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. You say, well, why not Genesis 11? Well, Deuteronomy 32 is kind of a, an expansion, really, of what happened at Babel. So you have the story at Babel and you have all these details about bricks and a tower and city and all this type of stuff. And then you have Deuteronomy 32, which kind of, kind of, kind of peeks into the story and says, oh, by the way, here's what God did. Here's what God did here, right? So I want to take a look at this real briefly. Um, Deuteronomy 32. And you, you can turn there if you want to, but I'll also have it up on the screen. We pick it up verse 7. And uh, it, it, this is what it says. Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you your elders and he will tell you. What? What's your father gonna tell you? What's your elder gonna tell you? He's gonna tell you what God did in Genesis chapter 11. Verse eight, and here's what he's gonna tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Verse nine, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. So go back to verse eight. So what happened here? 
What happened at Babel? God, the Lord Most High, gave to the nations what they wanted. They wanted their own city. They wanted their own thing. They wanted their own tower outside of God's plan, outside of living for God. They were a part of this religious system. And so what did God do? He came down and took a look at the situation. He came down into the midst of it. And he says, okay, I'm blowing this thing up. And I'm going to give these people up. I'm going to change their language. And I'm going to scatter them across the face of the earth. And I'm going to divide them up. I'm going to give them over to what they want, what they're pursuing. This idolatrous worship of these lesser things, these lesser gods, these demonic powers. I'm going to give them over to that. And I'm going to divide them up accordingly. And so this is where God divided mankind. He divided mankind. So this is what's happening. So what happened here affects everything else that happened throughout the Bible. What God did at Bethel is he literally gave up the nations. He disinherited, as Heiser would put it, he he disinherited the nations. He says, okay, you you don't want to listen to me? You you don't want to to obey the mandate? You don't want to be worshipers of the Lord Most High? I give you up. I give up the nations. I disinherit the nations. As Paul put it in Romans 1, you read Romans 1, and this is Paul's argument to to the church at Rome. He says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. He, he, he gave them over. He gave them over to all this stuff. He gave them over to their heart's desires in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so this is Paul's argument to the church at Rome, setting up the grand problem that Jesus Christ came into this world to deal with. What's that? That God came down at Babel and he disinherited the nations. Said, hey, you, 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 you want to be a brick? You want to serve a lesser thing? You want to worship the creator rather the creature rather than the creator? I, I disinherit the nations. And he divided the people and he gave them up according to the sons of God. Genesis 11, Deuteronomy 32, Romans 1, that verse some, perhaps some of the most grievous verses of scripture in all the Bible. So the people were turned over to the gods, the sons of God, these lesser divine beings of the sort that Lucifer is. But God just, he didn't just divide mankind and walk away. We know this isn't where the story stops, that God divides mankind, he confuses the languages, and he scatters the people across the world. God was still going to have a people. Even though he disinherited the nations, God still has a plan. Remember Genesis 3.15? There's this ongoing war of the seeds, and and there's going to be a seed of the woman that's going to come and crush the head of the Nakash, the serpent. So he still has a plan, and he's still going to have a people. Look at verse 9. Go back to, yeah. So he disinherited the nations. But look at this verse 9. It says, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Now, wait a second. When God disinherited the nations in Genesis 11, 
there is, there is no Jacob, right? Jacob's not born yet. But there was a, a man named Abram that we'll see next week when we turn the page. And God, in Ur of the Chaldeans, calls a man out of Ur, out of this area, and says, come to a land that I will show you, and I'm going to make a promise with you, a covenant with you, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through your seed, Abraham. So God had a plan. He called Abraham. I won't preach next week's message, but I have to give you a little bit of it here so you understand what's happening. God had a plan, and he was going to have a people. So he called Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob, who became the father of 12 boys, if you can imagine that. And those 12 boys grew up to be the 12 tribes of Israel, and those 12 tribes grew up to become the nation of Israel, the people of God, the chosen people of God. And it's not because no one else could be a part of the people of God, it's because he gave up the people who didn't want to be a part of him. And he selected a people, and he created his own special people in the world. Jacob is his allotted heritage. So how did God give up the people? And how did God have a people? How did God have a people? Well, he chose Abraham. And created and called a people. And it's through this people, this nation, Jacob, that God brings his son into the world as a human being, Jesus. He's born for a purpose, to give his life, to give his life on Calvary. And that purpose had, well, I don't know. Let me just throw out two, two things that it accomplished. We'll find out in eternity everything that it accomplished. Amen? But let me throw out a couple things. It was a work of atonement, atonement for sin, but it was also a work of redemption. It was a work of redemption. We were bought back at Calvary. We were atoned for, we were covered, but we were also bought back from where? from the slavery of the world, from the slavery of being a brick, from the slavery of serving the creature rather than the creator. Jesus does this through his work of redemption on the cross. Again, the cross was a work of atonement, but it was also a work of redemption. Now, I want to close with... How this expands into the New Testament. Because you can't really just have a Bible study to all oh, the Tower of Babel and they were bad and God didn't like it and he scattered the people and confused the language and okay, go out with joy <laughs> and be led forth with peace. <clears throat> when Jesus had been resurrected, he was with the disciples for 40 days after the resurrection. When he, was, when he ascended into heaven, he told the disciples, 
He said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. And the Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses, first in Judea, Jerusalem, and Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. So wait. Wait in Jerusalem. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter is going to come upon you. It was 10 days later on what is called the day of Pentecost, the 50th day after the resurrection, after Passover. The 50th day, they were gathered. It was 120 of them. They were gathered in Jerusalem and they were praying. And I want to read you the text. It's in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says this, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord, with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues, with other languages, as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Now, a lot of people have taken this four verses and what proceeds and ran off into a thousand different directions with it. In fact, there's whole movements and denominations that what they do is really kind of centered on their ideas about what happened here in this passage that I just read to you. Now, let me come into the middle of that whole conversation, if I, if I can, and show you what the Lord was doing at Pentecost that has its roots at what he did in Babel. Peter addresses the crowd that had gathered after the outpouring of the Spirit. While the, the crowds were wondering, what on earth is happening there were many people from around the different parts of the world that had gathered together at Pentecost and they had come in and then suddenly they, they hear these men and women that have been now filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit and they're praising God and the crowds from all over that had gathered for Pentecost that were there in Jerusalem for that particular feast were now hearing the praises of God in the languages from the people where they left. And listen to what they said in Acts chapter 2, verse 5. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, what sound? The sound of all these, this 120 speaking in all these different languages, suddenly. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all the, these who speak Galileans? It's like we're hearing all these languages from all over the world, and I'm looking, and these people are from Galilee. How is this happening? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? How is it? This is, I've just, that was scripture, not me. How is it that we're hearing this? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, in our own languages, the wonderful works of God. Oh my goodness, what is happening? The Holy Spirit inspiring Luke to write the section that I just read to you had him specifically list the names of these nations that were present that were now hearing the praises of God being uttered in their own language that they were marveling at. How is it that we hear them speaking in our own language? They're from Galilee. And what we have here is a reversal of the confusion at Babel. You see, what God did at Babel was he confused the language, he scattered the people, and he disinherited the people. What God did in Acts chapter 2, and what we're reading about in that particular section, is that God is now launching a mission through his spirit that he's going to begin to work in the world to recall, to reinvite the people of the world, starting in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world, he's going to work with a people, a body of believers who are going to be called to go out and call forth the people, the nations that have been disinherited and called to once again come into the family of God and be a people of God and be a part of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And so we have a reversal. What's amazing is this particular chapter that, that God did something to deal with the confusion that started at Babel has created so much confusion in the church. And what it's about is that God is calling forth to the nations. You can come out from underneath the bondage that you've been disinherited to. You can come out from the bondage of sin and worshiping the creature and come to worship the one true living God that has given you the, the, the breath of life in your body. So this was an event that launched the church in its ministry of calling the world back to the Lord Most High. I want to close with just reading this scripture from Psalm chapter 8, verse 7. I'm sorry, it's not Psalm 8. It's Psalm 2. I wrote that down wrong. <laughs> I apologize. Just block that. No, put it back up there, but just pretend that 8's not there. It's not Psalm 8, it's Psalm 2, okay? This particular psalm is... It's actually a conversation amongst the Trinity. And it's like we get like a bird's eye view, like we get to like just enter in, and, you know, we get to come right into the middle of this conversation between the Father and the, the Son and the Spirit. And this is, this is right in the middle of the, the whole thing. And it says, and the Lord has said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. This is actually a, a section of scripture that the Lord quotes and confounds the people because this is where David is actually saying, the Lord said to my Lord. The previous verse says, the Lord said to, unto my Lord. Right? 
who would come from the lineage of David. The Lord has said to me, the Father saying to the Son, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for an inheritance. What the Father was doing through the work of the ministry of the Son was doing a work of atonement, a work of redemption, and calling forth the nations to come back under the dominion and lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's the invitation. And the Father says, I will give you the nations. How far out as your inheritance? And the ends of the earth as your possession. And so the Father tells the Son that he's going to give them the nations as an inheritance. And the nations are going to be brought back. How's that? Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Philippians 2 verse 10 Put it up on the screen that, the name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So here's the thing. If you have believed upon Christ and put your trust in him, you are part of the family of God. You've been brought in and are being built into a living stone, the household of God, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, here is another opportunity for you tonight. Here you are receiving one more opportunity tonight, right now, hearing the gospel message, which is a call to come back to God, your creator, and come back and be a worshiper of the, of the true God most high. You've been here listening to the great length at which the Father and the Son and the Spirit have gone to call you out of bondage and to purchase your salvation. And so the choice is yours tonight. I planned that to keep you paying attention. The choice is yours. Are you a brick? Are you going to be conformed into the pattern of this world? Are you going to be a living stone being built up together with other people of God into a household, a temple of God, a city of God?